This is Kona Bible Church. Thanks for listening. We pray that you will experience God's blessing as you consider Pastor Brian's latest message from his series, Wrestling with God, from the book of Genesis. I'm going to do a little something different today, and that is I'm going to give you the points before we read. I know. (laughs) So um, if we could kind of jump to, uh, to the points uh, then we'll, we'll do that. So we've been in this series here in Genesis, uh, wrestling with God, really kind of asking the question, do you trust his word? And we're now getting kind of toward, right toward the end here. We're going to go through uh, three chapters today. Um, and one of the things that kind of, we, we've seen a couple of different themes emerge repetitively through Genesis. Um, and one of them is the power of the promise. That is, God comes... Uh, and overcomes our corruption, it's through his, the power of his promise that we see new life begin and, and, and not allow death or corruption to be the final word, um, as Jen just kind of said. Uh, and so we, that is ultimately seen not just in the cross, but in the empty tomb. Uh, and, and that's kind of the Christ event that, that we have this great hope in that we get to experience as well. Um, but even all the way back in Genesis, you see this power of the promise that is, is being proclaimed. Well, that, that is in contrast to being touched by corruption, and we've seen that theme arise repetitively again throughout Genesis, and how whether it's from our own corrupted hearts that we are experience corruption, or from the corrupted hearts of others, uh, we, we, it, it touches us on a regular basis. And, uh, and so then the beautiful thing is that God, one of the ways that he works through the power of the promise is he invites his people of faith to cooperate with him. And as we see this, there's kind of some new language that is kind of bubbling up because what we have observed to this point is, well, we are created in his image uh, to bring order, purpose, and life to the chaos. Uh, but when corruption kind of comes in and starts to disrupt that, well, then there's this new little tweak to it that we are seeing in the life of Joseph, and that is that, that we are uh, designed also to preserve life, right? Because now the corruption has, has come in and brought death. Well, wait a minute. We don't necessarily have to experience that death um, uh, to the degree that, that we sometimes do. No, in fact, when God's people cooperate with him, we are able to influence our culture uh, and preserve life. And that is really the story of Joseph. Uh, and yet, uh, in order to preserve life, um, I think there are some keys that we see from this passage in, t- in particular today that I hear kind of in the testimonies, even the, the bubbling um, from some of those testimonies about, well, reconciliation, restoration of relationship, and those types of things that I think we might be able to give some insights to, to, uh, to proceed with discernment. And so, when I think of this, the first thing that I, I'm going to invite you to consider for today is do not ignore past corruption. Okay? When, when it comes to discerning how to preserve life among your family, your friends, your neighbors, and your coworkers, do not forget about past corruption. Uh, you see, corruption, one of, the, one of the illustrations I think of in the physical world when I think of corruption is rust, right? Rust is something that is, is corrosive and it is corrupted, uh, and yet rust just didn't happen overnight. 
It, it takes time for rust to be able to kind of manifest itself and then really deteriorate uh, whatever, whatever it's, it's chasing after. And that's very much, in a spiritual sense, how the corruption of the heart works, right? We, it, it's not just something that, boom, pops in. So I think of, of the person who uh, cheats on their spouse, right? That's not something they just woke up that day and said, you know what? I think today's the day that I'll cheat on my spouse. No, it never happens like that. It happens by decision after decision after decision that is made over the course of many days, weeks, months, and years. I think about the, the teenager who commits suicide. That is not just some, some day that the teenager said, you know what, it's not worth it. I can't believe the Eagles lost today, and so I'm, I'm going to end it all. No, it is a repetitive believing of lies, right? And I wonder today in our culture, as we are, are subjected to hearing so many stories of, of uh, suicide and, and mass shootings, whether or not uh, people in our culture even know that they don't have to listen to the impulses that go through their brains. Do they even know that, right? Uh, and so uh, there will be many impulses that we have to be able to consider different things. But, uh, you know, for many of us, we, we kind of go, well, that's a crazy thought. Where did that come from? I'm not going to go that direction, right? We need to be able to train and to be able to speak to the next generation that says, just because you had a thought does not somehow make that you. I think about the, the confusion with our sexual identities right now, right? Uh, growing up in, in our world, in our culture, it's difficult we can have compassion on people who are struggling with their identity. That, there's no problem uh, going into the journey and having the conversation with people. But we also are not weaponless. We are not without recourse to be able to offer them some things to consider. And it's not just, well, God doesn't like that. No, it, we can come back and go, well, what are you hearing? Because when you, when you invite and you listen to somebody's story... What they will say repeatedly is, well, I'm hearing things over and over, or I'm sensing things, I'm feeling things. Well, okay, but that doesn't mean that you have to continually listen to those voices. At any moment, you can, you can just stop and say, no, I, I'm going to dwell on something different. And if, if they're not given an image of hope and of life and of, of beauty, well, then how are they ever supposed to see that? How is the teenager who's going through that that depression ever supposed to be able to look past it if they're not given an alternative story uh, of hope, right? So these are things that where the Christian community of faith can come back and go, you know what, for such a time as this, like Rebecca, for such a time as this in her life, she has been given this position to be able to offer a different vision, right? In order to do what? Well, to preserve life. Right? There's these other voices that are, that are happening in literature that are really very intentionally designed to, to take life away from people. And yet, uh, here you have a concerned person that's looking at this and going, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm here in order to, to be somebody who preserves life instead of takes it away. Well, we're going to learn some things through, uh, through, through Joseph and his example, but here's, here's the thing. In order to experience that preservation of life, you cannot forget past corruption, right? You cannot seek to, to move to restoration uh, immediately. That, that, you, that cannot happen, 
right? Because in, in order to have reconciliation, it takes two people committed to being in that relationship and, and a relationship that brings life, not death, right? You cannot have uh, one person that's in it and going, oh, I'm, I, the gospel calls me to forgive, and so I'm just going to forgive, forgive, forgive without being able to uh, observe, well, wait a minute, this other person is devoted to corruption, right? I, I, you're never going to have reconciliation if one person is devoted to corruption. And here's where the church has made, I mean, just, uh, uh, it's littered with a history of bad advice. Because we hear this simplistic version of the gospel that says, hey, we have to be able to forgive, which is true. We have to be able to forgive. Forgiveness requires how many of the two parties? One. You can forgive anybody, and I would encourage you to forgive and extend that forgiveness, but reconciliation takes two. Okay? So forgiveness is a good place to get your heart in a position to forgive, but reconciliation can only happen if there's this thing called repentance that takes place. Right? Now, it may be that you need to repent as well as a part of that reconciliation process, but forgiveness can be one, one directional. Reconciliation is going to have to be two directional. And so when you look at the life of Joseph, uh, you, you see some things that happen. Well, one of the things that he's not going to do is he's not going to forget the past corruption. Okay? So that's what, I want you to have that kind of in mind of, of what's going on. Um, I, do you want to go to the next one? I don't have any power over this. I got nothing. What he's going to do is he's going to test the fruit, okay? So you, you have this opportunity to be able to, uh, to judge. Did you know that? You have freedom to judge. <laughs> Nobody ever says that, do they? What do they say? Don't judge. No, that's stupid. That's the dumbest advice I've ever heard in my whole life. Don't judge, okay? No, here's the good advice. It comes with a condition. Don't judge Unless what? Noel, yeah, that's one of the conditions. Don't judge unless you have first judged yourself. Exactly. Remove that log from your own eye. But it doesn't say don't judge. I mean, the, the, you, you have to make these determinations. Scripture is offering a path that leads to life. Well, there's other paths, paths that lead to death. So in order to be able to make the correct determination in life, you have to be able to judge between what brings life and what brings death. That's a judgment. You have to be able to make these judgments. And so because corruption is often felt or touched by from other people, you have to be able to judge yourself and other people in relation to what brings life. That is part of the story. In fact, Jesus himself says, uh, you will know them by their fruits. Right? So he's saying you may not know their heart, you may not know the position of their heart, but what you will know is you will be given a peak of their heart based on how they act. And so in this story in particular, Joseph, is uh, he hasn't seen his brothers in 13 years, 13 to 15 years, he hasn't seen them. And so now, in fact, it might even be longer than that, if I'm doing my math wrong, I think, 22 years! He hasn't seen his brothers. And the last time he saw them, what? How did that go? Not good. Not good. He escaped death by the skin of his teeth. Right? They wanted to kill him. And then at the last second, they're like, ah, I guess if we can make some money. Right? 
I mean, that doesn't give you any assurance in your, in your sibling relationships. That is his last experience with them. Now, as we get into this passage, what I want you to be considering is it's a pretty well-known passage. In fact, if you just took the spiritual component out of it and you were just reading it for literature, I mean, you are talking about some of the highest literature in the world. This story has it all. I mean, it is a, a gripping, compelling story that we are not going to finish today. I'm going to leave you hanging right on the edge of the seat, and next week we're going to look at uh, the idea of being open to God's greater plan. That's really kind of the conclusion to the story. Now, go back to the prior slide that talks about the dilemma that he's in. Joseph is in a great dilemma that I don't know that many people who read this story actually consider. Because remember, he is the, the son of uh, Rachel, right? He's the favorite. And Jacob's favorite wife was Rachel and had all kinds of favoritism, right? And so that created all kinds of problems with the brothers. The brothers got jealous. But you know, there's another uh, son of Rachel. She died giving birth to Benjamin, right? And so now here, they are literally father, mother, brothers of the same father, mother. And, um, you know, if they were going to kill the one, you know, Joseph might... Uh, be a little concerned about his brother. He might be even more concerned when 10 of the brothers, all of them except for Benjamin, show up in Egypt, right? So the first time you've seen your family in 22 years, and it's the other 10 brothers who nearly killed you and sold you into slavery show up without your other brother. For him, Joseph, the question might be, uh, is my brother even alive? Because the way they treated me doesn't give me any indication that they would treat him well either. And knowing good old dear dad, he probably is favoring Benjamin just as much as he favored me over the other brothers, which is still causing the whole jealousy problem. And now, here they all are without Benjamin. Where is Benjamin? So, as you think about his life, all of a sudden we see this opportunity for Joseph to cooperate with God to preserve life. He's done it repetitively already. He did it in, in the household of Potiphar. He did it in prison. And now he's being elevated in Egypt, second in command of all of Egypt, in order to preserve life. His plan, his discernment was uh, readily agreed upon by Pharaoh and his advisors, and they said, you're the guy to carry out the plan, to take all this, the abundance that we're going to experience in the next seven years, stored up so that when the seven years of famine come through, that there will be provision for the people. Well, this famine is not just impacting Egypt, it's impacting the Canaan, which becomes the, the promised land, which becomes Israel, which then gets divided into Israel and Judah. It goes by many names, but a rose by any other name is still a rose, and you can apply that as you read through Scripture, and you talk about this land uh, that is always being kind of switching and, and being names. It's still this land, and they are in famine as well. So the brothers are sent down uh, to uh, procure provisions, and now we have this great dilemma. So with that in mind... I want to be able to read through Genesis 42 and 44, and, and the idea here from Joseph's perspective is Operation 
rescue Benjamin. All right? When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, oh, by the way, you are welcome to follow along in your Bibles. You're welcome to close your eyes uh, and envision this if you need to, because really this is God's word. This is the, the, the best thing that can be done in a church is to, to read his word. That's what transforms lives. So uh, it'll take a little while today, unlike, well, When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you looking at each other? He then said, look, I hear that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy grain for us so that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers, for he said, what if some accident happens to him? So Israel's sons came to buy grain among the other travelers, for the famine was severe in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was the ruler of the country, the one who sold grain to all the people of the country. Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger to them and spoke to them harshly. He asked, where do you come from? They answered, from the land of Canaan to buy grain for food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed about them, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see if our land is vulnerable. But they exclaimed, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy grain for food. We are all the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if you're Joseph and you're hearing this, no, okay. Uh, that's rich. No, he insisted, but you have come to see if our land is vulnerable. They replied, your servants are from a family of 12 brothers. We are the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is with our father at this time, and one is no longer alive. But Joseph told them, it is just as I said to you, you are spies. You will be tested in this way. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not depart from this place unless, and here's the insight here, your youngest brother comes here. Operation Preserve the Life of Benjamin, right? He does not know if the brother's hearts have truly repented or if Benjamin's life is in danger. One of you must go and get your brother while the rest of you remain in prison. In this way, your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. He imprisoned them all for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do as I say, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, leave one of your brothers confined here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your hungry families. But you must bring your youngest brother to me. Then your words will be verified, and you will not die. They did as he said. They said to one another, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. Because we saw how distressed he was when he cried out to us for mercy, but we refused to listen. This is, that is why this distress has come on us. Reuben said to them, didn't I say to you, don't sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. So now we must pay for shedding his blood. Now they did not know that Joseph could understand them, for he was speaking through an interpreter. He turned away from them and wept. When he turned around and spoke to them again, he had Simeon taken away from them and tied up before their eyes. You see, don't forget about birth order. 
Don't forget about the patriarchal system that would imply that the eldest born is the most responsible and has the greatest voice in the family. But Reuben has a backstory. Reuben uh, defiled his father's bed by sleeping with one of the mothers of the other of his brothers. Right now, as objectionable as that is on the surface and even beyond the surface. Uh, remember, there is rationale and reason for why he would do that in order to announce to his brothers, I'm the guy. But by doing something like that that is so objectionable, what he really did was he announced his inability to lead his brothers. And so what you see is Reuben being essentially neutered, for lack of a better term, it's kind of a funny term in light of the story, uh, in his relationship with his brothers and his father, They have no confidence in his leadership skills. You saw that even back when he tried to protect Joseph. They didn't listen to him, right? So Reuben has kind of disqualified himself from the leadership of the family, and he gets no respect from his brothers uh, based on some inferences that you can see here from Scripture and how they do not listen to him. But Joseph may not have known this tidbit until it was spoken. And so who is the second born? Simeon is the second born. So Joseph might rightly conclude, oh, it was Simeon that orchestrated the whole deal. We're going to go ahead and hold him in prison and uh, allow the other brothers to go, right? You, You have some of this at play, but the reality is who was responsible for suggesting the course of action that the brothers took? Judah. Judah was the one, and so as this story unfolds, watch the dynamic that is at play here. So Simeon uh, is taken from them. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to return each man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. His orders were carried out. So they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. Now you're probably talking about, you know, a 10-day journey on on donkey, then maybe, you know, now all the grain's on the donkeys, so you're kind of walking them back. You're probably talking about a month-ish ballpark to go down to Egypt and back, um, it, you know, kind of what you're looking at. When one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey at their resting place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money was returned. Here it is in my sack. They were dismayed. They were dismayed at the money being returned. They turned trembling one to another and said, what in the world has God done to us? Now, you'll notice, I think, in life that for the guilty, they they can never receive the blessings of God as blessings. They're always viewing life through the lens that they engage the world with. And so when it starts to flip back, like the grace... You ever hear of the Teflon Don? Yeah, remember John Gotti? He was one of the godfathers in New York City. His nickname was the Teflon Don because all, uh, anytime they tried to prosecute the guy, all the accusations just bounced off him as if they would never stick. So he was never uh, imprisoned for any of the crimes he did. Well, they eventually got him, but he got off of a lot of them. That's kind of like, believers or unbelievers who are guilty grace bounces off them it's like teflon to them they just don't get it like why would god be good to me because i'm not that's not how i engage with the world 
Why would God engage with me differently? And so you see throughout this story, this just the grace bouncing off. The money's back in the sack. And they're saying, why would God do this to us? He's got it out for us. Wow. They returned to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan and told him all the things that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly to us and treated us as if we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we are honest men, we are not spies. We are from a family of 12 brothers. We are the sons of one father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father at this time in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, This is how I will find out if you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for your hungry households and go. But bring your youngest brother back to me so I will know that you are honest men and not spies. Then I will give you your brother back to you and you may move about freely in the land. You see the whole operation to rescue Benjamin? When they were emptying their sacks, there was each man's bag of money in his sack. When they and their father saw the bags of money, they were afraid. Their father Jacob said to them, you are making me childless. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will bring him back to you. But Jacob replied, my son will not go down there with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If an accident happens to him on the journey you have to make, then you will bring my gray hair in sorrow to the grave. Now the famine was severe in the land. When they finished eating the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, return, buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us. You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we won't go down there, because the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had one more brother? They replied, The man questioned us thoroughly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? These guys would be terrible at poker. I, would, I have to tell you that. Like, honestly, I mean, if, they, if like, they're not reading the signs, you're like, maybe this guy's, does he know something that I don't know? So we answered him in this way. How could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me and we will go immediately. Then we will live and not die, we and you and our little ones. I myself pledge security for him. You may hold me liable. If I do not bring him back to you and place him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. But if we had not delayed, we could have traveled there and back twice by now. So you see the dynamic. Reuben offers the, his own children, right? Judah and, and his decline. The father doesn't even give it any thought. Judah comes back and says, no, I will offer you my very self. I will bear the blame, and I will take on the responsibility of this. Now, remember Judah's story. This is why that one chapter about Judah and Tamar is so important. Because we saw Reuben, he disqualified himself. We saw Simeon and Levi, they disqualified themselves, right, with the whole using the circumcision to disable the town and, and just kill all those people. 
right? And then we saw a story about Judah and how he disqualified himself by withholding uh, his, his son in order to procreate for his other dead son, right? It's a crazy story. Uh, if, you, if, you haven't, if you don't know anything about Kinsman Redeemer, let's have coffee sometime and we can talk about that. It's exhilarating stuff. But he disqualified himself by doing that. And in the process, remember when he found out that Tamar was pregnant, he said, well then, off with her head. We're going to kill her, right? There was no grace, nothing at all in, in relation to her and her circumstances until he found out that it, he was the father of the children. You see, there's something different. We can presume that if we had stories about the rest of the brothers, we probably would have stories about how all of them disqualified themselves because that's what we do. Corrupted people disqualify themselves on a regular basis. But do you know what God says? The power of my promise will overcome the disqualification of people who humble themselves before me. And so what we see in the life of Judah is somebody who humbled himself and came back and did what was right and then was brought back to life and able to be able to lead the family. Well, this is, this is what the father recognizes. Okay, this guy who's learned his lesson, yes, I'll put Benjamin in his hands, but not for, uh, for Reuben. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and take a gift down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachios and almonds. Take double the money with you. You must take back the money that was returned in the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother too and go right away to the man. May the sovereign God grant you mercy before the man so that he may release your brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I lose my children, I lose them. So the men took these gifts, and they took double the money with them, along with Benjamin. Then they hurried down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the servant who was over his household, Bring the men to the house. Slaughter an animal and prepare it, for the men will eat with me at noon. The man did just as Joseph said. He brought the men into Joseph's house. But the men were afraid when they were brought to Joseph's house. They said, we are being brought in because of the money that was returned in our sacks last time. He wants to capture us, make us slaves, and take our donkeys. So paranoia, man. I'm telling you, guilty people are paranoid people. I, I mean, I'm guilty, but I try to deal with my sin on a regular basis. And if the, if the number two guy in a country is inviting me over for dinner, I'm in. I might invite myself over to his house for dinner. That's how presumptuous I am. Take me. I'm, I'm in on that dinner. These guys are paranoid. So they approached the man who was in charge of Joseph's household and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. They said, My Lord, we did indeed come down the first time to buy food. But when we came to the place where we spent the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found the money, his money, the full amount, in the mouth of his sack. So we have returned it. We have brought additional money with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. Everything is fine, the, young, the man in charge of, of Joseph's household told them. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. 
The servant in charge brought the men into Joseph's house. He gave them water, and they washed their feet. Then he gave food to their donkeys. They got their gifts ready for Joseph's arrival at noon, for they had heard that they were to have a meal there. When Joseph came home, they presented him with the gifts they had brought inside, and they bowed down to the ground before him. He asked them how they were doing. Then he said, Is your aging father well? The one you spoke about, is he still alive? Your servant, our father, is well, they replied. He is still alive. They bowed down in humility. When Joseph looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother whom you told me about? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Now, Joseph is not entirely sure yet that the heart has been transformed among his brothers, so he's going to test them again. Remember, the issue for him and his brothers was favoritism and jealousy. And so he is now going to provide an opportunity to examine whether the brothers are still jealous over favoritism. Watch what he does here. Joseph hurried out, for he was overcome by affection for his brother and was at the point of tears. So he went to his room and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. With composure, he said, set out the food. They set a place for him, a separate place for his brothers, and another for the Egyptians who were eating with him. The Egyptians are not able to eat with Hebrews, for Egyptians think it is disgusting to do so. It's a nice little side reference. They sat before him, arranged by order of birth, beginning with the firstborn and ending with the youngest. The men looked at each other in astonishment. Again, you know, at a certain point, you've got to be able to figure this stuff out, guys. He gave them portions of the food set before him, but the portion for Benjamin was five times greater than the portions for any of the others. They drank with Joseph until they all became drunk. He instructed the servant who was over his household, fill the sacks of the men with as much food as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the, ones, of the youngest one's sack, along with the money for his grain. He did as Joseph instructed. When morning came, the men and their donkeys were sent off. They had not gone very far from the city when Joseph said to his servant, who was over his household, pursue the men at once. When you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Doesn't my master drink from this cup and use it for divination? You have done wrong. When the man overtook them, he spoke these words to them. They answered him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Look, the money that we have found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Why then would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If one of us has it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. He replied, You have suggested your own punishment. The one who has it will become my slave, but the rest of you will go free. So each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The, the man searched. He began with the oldest and finished with the youngest. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They all tore their clothes. Then each man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came back to Joseph's house. He was still there, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What did you think you were doing? Don't you know that a man like me can find out things like this by divination? 
Judah replied, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has exposed the sin of your servants. We are now my Lord's slaves, we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose hand the cup was found will become my slave, but the rest of you may go back to your father in peace. Do you see the fulfillment of the operation of rescue Benjamin? He has perfectly orchestrated events because right now they're at the tipping point of finding out, are the hearts of the brothers truly changed? If they aren't, I've got Benjamin and I have rescued him out of their hands from, uh, and preserved his life. And if they have, well, we can talk about that next week when we see how he responds in that way. But let's finish this chapter out. Then Judah approached him and said, My Lord, please allow your servant to speak a word with you. Please do not get angry with your servant, for you are just like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an aged father, and there is a young boy who was born when our father was old. The boy's brother is dead. He is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you told your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves his father, his father will die. But you said to your servants, if your youngest brother does not come down with you, you will not see my face again. When we returned to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Then our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we replied, we cannot go down there. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go, for we won't be permitted to see the man's face if our youngest brother is not with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife gave me two sons. The first disappeared, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces. I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and an accident happens to him, then you will bring down my gray hair in tragedy to the grave." So now, when I return to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his very life is bound up in his son's life. When he sees the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, in sorrow to the grave. Indeed, your servant pledged security for the boy with my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame before my father all of my life." So now please let your servant remain as my Lord's slave instead of the boy. As for the boy, let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see my father's pain. When you go through this this calling that you have as the people of God to bring order, purpose, and life, and even to preserve life, among your family, your friends, your neighbors, and your coworkers, you cannot ever forget past corruption. If you forget past corruption, then you might unintentionally be giving uh, into the hands of, of the abuser uh, another soul to be abused. No, what do you do? You have to use the discernment. That's a gift that God gives us as a community. That you don't be too readily forgive people. Well, you can forgive people readily, 
but that you take your reconciliation with people at a much slower pace, that you can actually test them and, and, and test their fruit in order to see if their hearts have indeed been changed. This is the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is not just relating a story that happened. It's a story that happened so that the community of faith, Israel, and the other community of faith, the church, might learn from this story and be able to use discernment in how we proceed in order to preserve life. You see, there are many people who, who get abused at the hands of an abuser, and, and we long to have that reconciliation, that moment where we experience the grace of God in, in, in such a beauty, and we, we push it sometimes far too fast before we actually have learned whether true repentance has happened. This happens in parent-child relationships. This happens in husband-wife relationships. This happens in all the different relationships you could possibly imagine. And we've been called by the gospel, this gospel that says, oh, forgiveness is this wonderful thing, extend it. And yet sometimes we do it without discerning and in the process, we miss an opportunity to preserve life. My invitation for you today is to consider this passage, to consider your calling as people of God, that while we are supposed to receive forgiveness, to dispense forgiveness, we are also tasked with the, the obligation to preserve life. Not just our own lives, like, don't use this as an excuse to just kind of then say, oh, well, uh, they don't seem like they've really changed, so uh, I'm done with them. No, that's not the purpose. Don't use it in the wrong way. Use it in the right way in order to go, well, wait a minute, I might have to test the fruits of people before I entrust either my own heart or the hearts of others that I love back into the hands of somebody who has disqualified themselves uh, from being involved. The reality is we've all done that. We've all disqualified ourselves. So every one of us should be tested by one another. It is okay to do that. It, it, you think about the, um, the unimaginable amounts of people who have been abused by people in churches. You can't just Take a pastor and go, okay, we're going to send you to a different region without testing the person and, and examining whether or not they have actually repented. It doesn't mean that they are disqualified for life. It means that they need to show true repentance before we ever entrust people back under their care. Folks, this is, this is real life. You see what Joseph is going through, and and ultimately, he, he's not going to ignore the past. He is going to test the fruit. And by the grace of God, the brothers have actually changed. And so it sets themselves up for the final point, and that is that we have this opportunity to see the greater plan of God. And if I haven't scared you off this week by going till 12.05, you can come next week... Or you could read the rest of the story yourself this week and uh, see how the story concludes. Father, thank you so much for your word that is intended to bring us life. Father, we misrepresent it so often. 
Will you have grace to give us eyes to see how we should use, should use discernment to be able to preserve life uh, in our midst? Father, will you forgive the church for, for the amount of abuse we have enabled among our own people by not having discernment and rushing too quickly toward reconciliation when forgiveness is what you called us to in order that reconciliation may eventually happen. Father, we trust you to change lives. We want to be uh, your, you cooperate with you to dispense this forgiveness to others who are in desperate need of it. And, and so, Father, uh, will you just allow us to, to, to grow in our ability to be able to see these things? We ask them in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.